Hello and welcome to the unreleased The Design Research Podcast. This podcast exists to help map, broadcast and promote design research worldwide. The unreleased podcast is brought to you by IAD, Universidade Europeia and UNIDCOM. The interview was recorded at IAD as part of the PhD and Design program. To know more, visit unreleased.unitcom-yad.pt That's .unitcom-yad.pt In this episode, recording during the 2020 Doctoral Design Consortium, Davide Antonio Gambera talks with Paul Chamberlain, Professor of Design at Sheffield Hallam University, Co-Director of the Cultural Communication and Computing Research Institute, Ed of the Art and Design Research Center, Director of Design Futures and Co-Director of Interdisciplinary Research Group, Lab for a Living. His interests lie in designing and developing tools and methods to encourage and engender social innovation and apply this with a focus on healthcare, disability and aging. His most recent research project are Design to Care and Buddy Watch. During this conversation, Chamberlain talks about the growing topic of design and health, quality extended life, design as a positive role to enhance well-being, collaboration between sciences. And, and again, we, we pitched it in the argument, it has economic value, it has societal value. And so we've got to, we've got to be good at arguing our, our position of, of our value to society, say both economical and, and societal. I think where, where we can um, borrow from is, is design for decades now has been used to demonstrate its value in business. You know, certainly across the world, design councils, the UK Design Council has been promoting the value of design in business. Design-focused companies, uh, the, the evidence is out there that they're more profitable, um, that they're more agile. You know, you look at the leading com global companies, they use design. And I think now it's been recognised, why not then apply some of that design thinking in health services and, and other businesses, because that's what they are, they're businesses. Um, and so I think there's recognition that design has a lot to offer. Here are Davide and Chamberlain. Thank you for accepting with great kindness our invitation to our uh, doctor consortium and also to our podcast. I would like to start with you with the uh, a general question. Nowadays, we see uh, we see design for health and well-being in frequent tracks in one of, in the, some of the most important conferences, such as the DRS, Comorus. We see a great a growing number of dedicated conferences. You are you are also an organizer of a, a, an important conference uh, that was planned to happen in Amsterdam this year, Design for Health 2020. Uh, we witnessed a great number of dedicated journals, and you are also the editor of a Design for Health journal. Most important, we finally see the creation of dedicated courses in the most important design universities. My question is this one. Is Design for Health maybe one of the hottest fields nowadays in the design research? And what is the reason? for this great success? Uh, firstly, thank you. Um, and I'm honored to be uh, invited um, to, to 
kind of join in um, this, this uh, conversation. Yes, as you say, um, D Design for Health um, has, over a number of years, uh, grown. It's become a, a topic um, of, of great interest. I, I think largely that is down to um, the fact that we have a, an aging population and um, medical science has done an incredible job to extend that life. Um, we, we, we have uh, increased life expectancy each generation. And um, I think while medical science uh, will extend life, there's an important question to ask that that extended life, I would think for most people, is only of value if it's a quality extended life. And the problem is with medical interventions and science, we are extending life, but we're seeing more chronic conditions and more illnesses, which is putting more pressure on hospitals, but not only more pressure on hospitals, in some cases, it's not a great existence. It's very difficult to live later in life with these multiple chronic conditions. So I think where design and the arts comes in, it makes life worth living. <laughs> um, and I think what we can contribute is to enhance the quality of that extended uh, life. Um, so I think that there's both a, a kind of societal contribution for design to play and, and an economic um, role, because if we can take the pressure off, off hospitals, um, that's good for the e economics of, of countries. Um, and I think, I think we have to be careful because design has very much a positive role to play in, in making the world a, a better place. Um, and if it makes it a better place where it's more fun, it's safer, it's more enjoyable, that's good for our well-being. So it's concerned with our health. But the warning is a lot of the bad things in the world, in the physical world, have been designed. <laughs> And so design is, can be quite dangerous because it could do bad things as well as good things. And I think what we've got to make sure is we apply it thoughtfully and sensibly because it, if it's used in, you know, not with thought, it can create problems for us. So I think, um, again, w w without going on too long in response of, of, of your, your, your kind of question, I think... There, there are two aspects to, to well-being and health. There's the traditional model of curative health in hospitals where, where, where there's the delivery of, of treatment. And for many, many years, you know, we can go way back. Design has been involved. Architects have been involved in the creation of hospitals, of, in, of environments, of the, the hospital beds, of the equipment. Somebody's designed it to make that experience better for the patient and the, the healthcare professionals. The other aspect of health, which I think is of great interest and, and great opportunity for designers, is the preventative. Stop people getting ill. So how do we design cities, environments, homes, to enhance our well-being so we stay well for longer. And I think that's a very interesting area for design in the context of health and well-being. Maybe, Professor, the great achievement we, we have nowadays is the passage from a, a pathogenic conception of healthcare, focusing on the cause that generate disease, toward a salutogenic, focusing on the causes that generate well-being. So in this new framework, we can see uh, interventionists, the one that you showed, you showed us today. 
in um, in your uh, amazing talk. Um, we see another thing that is really uh, interesting in a field, such as uh, design for health. And that the thing is that this is a hybrid field of research. We embrace several other disciplines, for example, health science, of course, but also social innovation is the case of several projects you coordinated, biology, and I'm thinking particularly in neurosciences. But just to say, our transdisciplinary approaches are important to support a research in design for health. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, so, some of the, the big global challenges now um, cannot be addressed by one single discipline. And, and one of the big global challenges is uh, an aging society and, and, and future health. So there's a requirement to bring experts and, and disciplines and, and health concerns us all. Uh, and we, 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 you know, many disciplines can, can um, play a role in, in contributing to that. So, yeah, there, there, there are opportunities for design in, in multidisciplinary um, collaborations. Um, and design has traditionally and still provides a service um, in the design of, of products, you know, um, in, in more that traditional design practice, professional practice sense. But in terms of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary, where we're breaking down the borders of disciplines and we're creating new spaces and, and new methodologies, I think is really exciting. And it, and it is challenging. And, and I think it, it takes some visionary approach by individuals within those disciplines to leave the baggage of their discipline behind and, and come in with an open mind. And, and you, you, you asked in the first question and, and you, you highlighted, you know, and the topic of this talk is very much around design and health. What you have there are two disciplines that have a lot of synergies. You know, as I said, hospitals, equipment are designed. But in terms of disciplines... They, they are polar opposites. You know, design, um, we encourage risk-taking. We encourage failure. We learn through failure. Whereas in, in health, it's a risk-averse discipline. They're, they're not uh, taught to take risks. They have to be very cautious, obviously, because lives are at stake. So how, how do we engage health people to approach things in a more... Um, kind of open-ended, exploratory way when they've been conditioned to this risk-averse approach. So I, th I think that the cultures of, of the groupings is, is, is very challenging, and, and I think it's important to get the right champions of those fields to come in with those open minds to move forward into these transdisciplinary spaces. Yes, Professor, one, one, one thing that comes to my mind when, when you talk about um, these two opposite words is that sometimes uh, running a research in this field, in this uh, uh, hybrid field, a hybrid field that we call design for health, it's harder than in other fields. If we talk for design, for example, we struggle with ethic committee, we struggle with safety restrictions, we struggle with data protection, and we have several other constraints. Yeah. So my question now is, what would you suggest to a young researcher that is for the first time addressing this, uh, these problems uh, related with the specific field of research to, to, to run a successful research? Yeah, I think... Um 
it, it, it has been and, and it still is uh, a challenge to get, get recognition um, fr from a more kind of arts-based discipline, you know, into the science-based, which is more absolute and, and quantifiable. But I think we, we've, we've experienced through, through COVID that the science is fallible, you know, um, absolute, you know, you can only analyze what data you collect and sometimes the data is, is incomplete. So it, it's, it's inaccurate, whereas the, the approach often what we're doing is more truthful. Um, it might not be um, kind of so exhaustive in, in, in terms of its collection of data, but, I think it, it, it's that there's an onerous on um, us in design research and, and, and new researchers to be familiar with some other research methodologies. I, I think it's okay to borrow method, methodologies from other disciplines and it's important we, we approach things in, in a rigorous way. But I think what we mustn't do is leave behind our methodologies and, and just jump ship to all the social sciences and jump ship to all the scientific methodologies. I think we use them sparingly and cautiously, but we hang on to what we're good at and we argue the case for them. Um, in, in the UK, the, the higher education body has a, quite a good descriptor of research and it's um, a systematic process of investigation that leads to new insights that's effectively shared. Now, if we're approaching uh, a design practice pro uh, project, there's no reason in the world why we shouldn't have a systematic and rigorous process. The trouble is we often don't record it. <laughs> we do it intuitively. Um, it comes out of our head. But what we have to do is there's a systematic, rigorous process of investigation. And often, you know, we, we use drawing, we use models, we go into a studio, we test ideas, we learn from testing. That is a systematic process of investigation. Then the question is, if it's research, does it lead to new insights? Have we found out about the world by doing that? Have we found out about structures, about people, about whatever? And then the final thing is effectively sharing. And often in design, what we're not very good is it stays in our head and we're not used so much to publish, publishing the work. So what we're more familiar with is, is making objects that go in design magazines, they go in to exhibitions, um, they, they, they live a short life and other disciplines don't get to see them because that's not their world. So this is why we, we um, a couple of years ago, set up the Design for Health journal because we, we have to, in some part, make an effort to share, effectively share our knowledge with other communities. And that does mean writing papers, writing journals, going to conferences. But as I say, as a warning, we mustn't abandon what we're, what's core to our discipline. We mustn't leave that behind. Yeah, I think that uh, also the, the rigorous uh, constraints that we have in um, in design in this specific field of design for health, it's also um, what gives us uh, this uh, boldness, this uh, uh, to, to our to this kind of research. For example, Lab for Living uh, has been recently awarded by a four million uh, 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 funding from the research. Uh, 
from a governative research institution in, uh, in the UK. It's not the only one. You coordinated project, for example, for Marie Curie, British Council. Are governmental organizations finally aware about the importance of design research in a field as health? Yeah, I, I think, again, we, we, we were um, very pleased and, and uh, sub somewhat surprised that, that we, as, as a design research unit, got a major government grant and we were competing against every discipline uh, in every university. So that was a signal, maybe, maybe the government do see the value in design. And, and again, we, we pitched it in the argument, it has economic value, it has societal value. And so we've got, to, we've got to be good at arguing our, our position of, of our value to society, say both economical and, and societal. I think where, where we can um, borrow from is, is design for decades now has been used to demonstrate its value in business. You know, certainly across the world, design councils, the UK Design Council has been promoting the value of design in business. Design-focused companies, uh, the, the evidence is out there that they're more profitable, um, that they're more agile. You know, you look at the leading com global companies, they use design. And I think now it's been recognised, why not then apply some of that design thinking in health services and, and other businesses, because that's what they are, they're businesses. Um, and so I think there's recognition that design has a lot to offer. Um, and, and so we, it's not something new. Um, as I said, there's a long track record of design success with industry and, and business. And I think we can borrow from that. Okay, Professor, let's take some questions from uh, uh, the public, from the audience. So, um, User-centered design has been the prevailing paradigm for many years. With this approach, we are able to design amazing products, but nowadays we are facing the needs to redesign them, to correct their failures. This means that we as designers failed when designing the existing world. So do, did we fail? Does this mean that we should ignore UCD approach and look to other approaches? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I kind of hinted uh, in, in you know, j just recently that I think we have to be very thoughtful of, of what we do in design. Um, and sometimes it's better to do nothing <laughs> than do something that might have an adverse effect. Because if, if you think of all the health conditions, um, who, who designs the packaging for cigarettes? Design. Who designs the vehicles that create the pollution in the cities, designers. You know, who creates the advertising for bad food, designers. So I, I think designers, we, it, it's very, I think what we, the easy thing, and, and, and I, I put my hands up here, we can hold a moral ground in an academic situation. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to fight the cause. Uh, I appreciate, and, and I've experienced it, in industry, it might be different. There are different pressures. You know, companies have to, have to make money. They have to employ people. Uh, designers, when they graduate, need a job. And, and it, it takes a lot to turn down a job on moral grounds when you need money to pay the rent and, and eat. But, you know, when you look around us, a lot of the, the poor health conditions we're facing there's been a design intervention that arguably has caused it. Um, 
And if we just said, well, we're not, we're not going to design anything that's potentially bad for society, it, it would be very diff difficult. But I think we've just got to try and improve. It's incremental. We've, we've just slowly just got to make improvements, make things more sustainable, more environmentally friendly, better for our health. Um, and and it, sometimes it's those very small interventions that make a big, big difference. And, and it's seeking out what those might be. I, I agree totally, especially uh, because in universities are the, the place for uh, um, that kind of thinking that is has to be discussed also in ethical terms. Sometimes we consider ethical issues a limit, but in other cases, limits are, can be turned in, in possibilities. And especially when we talk about um, universities as collaborative places. I have a question from the public then says, are we wasting uh, uh, some new settings like collaborative spaces uh, uh, that we can use to produce some new knowledge? So do you see that maybe there are some spaces that we are not using enough as for example, co-working, as for example, uh, those kind of uh, shared spaces where some interesting dynamics can take, can take place. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, one of the, the, um, the, the kind of benefits of design working in health um, or, or any other context, but I think, you know, we're specifically looking at health is People in an environment become normalized. So, so health practitioners become normalized in systems and environments. When a designer goes in and, and it's a new experience, you can ask what might appear silly questions. Why, why do you do that? And often the response is, well, we always do it like that. We never really thought about doing it any differently. When you go into a new thing, you, you can see things differently. And, and I think that's the good thing about designers working in health. We're not normalized to that situation. So we can go in, we can ask different questions, we spot things that aren't. Now, in the same sense, I think there's a danger of design becoming normalized in the way we operate and the methods we use and it becomes formulaic. And I, I think, you know, while COVID's been, you know, a terrible thing, terrible, terrible thing, you know, globally, you know, what, what we've had, we've got to deal with it. And, and I think hopefully we, we could see, well, what positive could come out of this? And it might change the way we, we work. You know, we're, we're managing now to communicate. It would have been nice to be in, in Lisbon um, talking to you and spending more time. And there is huge value in that. And I hope that doesn't disappear. But I think what we can do is more of these on a more regular basis that doesn't involve lots of travel, lots of pollution, lots of time. So I, I think we've got to be creative in how we, we enter those collaborative spaces. And, and maybe, and I think equally, where we um, some, sometimes struggle. Um, you know, we, we have a very westernized view of design. Um, and and um, I think trying to tap into marginalized groups is often difficult. You know, we, we work within the communities we are familiar with because it's generally easier. So I think it, it, this COVID throws up an opportunity for us to rethink how, how we do collaborate. Um, and I hope it doesn't just become all virtual. I hope there there's still is real value in, in meeting. Uh, but that, that might be more precious when, when we do that. It's true. It's, it's true. I, I will relate now this um, this uh, 
specific uh, uh, concept to a question that I'm receiving from the public related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they're asking if, uh, is this the new normality regarding digital spaces? Or are we defining a new future based on necessity and not on a conscious intention for the future? Yeah, well, time will tell. Um, <laughs> I think, um, as I said, I, I think that there are opportunities and I think we'll see advances in, in technology and online. Um, I think what has been good and, and potentially accelerated the, the opportunity for um, remote uh, telehealth care. You know, one of the problems I, I alluded to and, and the literature suggests is that technology has been evolving and developing, but there's a lack of uptake because people haven't had that mind shift to accept that paradigm shift of care from hospital to home. And what we found in COVID is that's happened and so a lot of older people, you know, I've got relations and, and my mother has, has suddenly, you know, um, become very familiar um, and quite comfortable with using technology on a regular basis because it's been a forced issue. There'd been no other way to communicate with the outside world. So I think what might have happened is we, we, we've got an older generation who are now more prepared to accept technology. Um, and I think there will be advances in technology because companies will see. But, but I, I, do, I do worry that, that a lot of people will see this as um, the, the normal for the future because it could, it could have significant consequences if, um, for instance, education remains all online. You know, businesses, offices, uh, you know, is, is all conducted from home the impact on our cities and our city centres, you know, on shops, it will have absolutely catastrophic um, implications for, for cities because if it all moves back to home. And, and I think one, one of the concerns, you know, run, running a research centre, what I've found is we've been able to do some things very well remotely. We've been able to have remote meetings. that They've been good, but it's not the same as face-to-face. Um, I, I think body language and, and the impromptu nature of face-to-face of, um, -face meetings is, is certainly different to the more formality of, of, of virtual meetings. Um, we've been able to write. We've been able to do a lot of text-based research. So, so again, a lot of disciplines have been able to continue research and a lot of disciplines have been able to continue to teach online. Design very much revolves around a studio practice culture and it, it revolves around making and production and it's certainly um, been a challenge for us in our research centre um, being able to produce things. Um, I'm, I'm dealing now with a number of industries that, that are just going back to work and it's critical to what we do is production in design, it's, it's critical. So. That has been very, very difficult. Um, not impossible online, again, with technologies that will allow CAD models to be shared and printed. But I think the, the, the notion of doing away with the physical design studio creative space and making space um, is, is something that, that I think we'll appreciate even more, as I say, when, when we return to some new normal. A certain kind of normality. <laughs> I... I um, 
I also saw in this period, maybe for, for us that are involved in, in this specific field of design for health, maybe COVID-19 represented also a bit uh, a new showcase because we saw more designers involved in finding solutions. For example, we use some uh, um, communication, communication strategies done to promote healthier behaviors. We saw uh, um, the use of information, information technology to reduce the risk of infection through, for example, the use of specific apps. Uh, in, uh, in product design, we saw some designers that used um, 3D printers to adopt uh, other objects, as for example, scuba driving masks, in case of the absence of ventilators in specific uh, intensive care units. So maybe, uh, I think probably, this is the question that I also uh, make to you. Do you think that now this society is more aware, I mean, uh, for society, the, the, the larger part of the society, it's more aware about the importance of designing or design research in this field. Yeah, I, I think um, certainly uh, creativity in design has come, come to the fore in, in, in the, the media. You know, there's been um, active calls out to, to people, anybody who, who, you know, in the peak of a crisis who could provide PPE and um you know, uh, masks and print from home. And uh, as you say, the, the, I think that there's recognition that, that design um, has responded very well in, in communication. Um, th there's a, a lot of projects now um, where they're looking at service design as well, about rethinking services, um, which design research has, has a big role to play. I, I think Certainly in the UK, there's a slight concern that um, obviously we're, we're all going to face now quite a considerable economic downturn. Um, there's likely to be a global downturn, so there's going to be less money for, for research. And you just hope they don't see science, you know, the money must go to the science to, to, to come up with a vaccine, which it must. And, 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 you know, the, the future is the investment in scientific research. I think, you know, um, design spans the, the kind of technological and the arts. And it's really important that, that governments commit and see the value of, of design and, and uh, design research. I, th I think what, what equally has come out of COVID, which is encouraging, is my experience, and I'm, I'm sure others, working within the health environment and working with with um kind of users hospitals of, of equipment and working with business sometimes it's a very close shop um procurement to hospitals um it is is very difficult to penetrate you know there are companies who are suppliers to the industry and new suppliers, it's very difficult to, to bring new things to market as a new supplier and get through that process. What we found with COVID is some of that has all been gone to the wall and it's sped up development time. It has introduced new players to the market. We, we've seen in the UK, you know, Formula One um, companies producing healthcare um, equipment, uh, Dyson, you know, suddenly was producing healthcare equipment and small businesses, local small businesses who, who had to furlough staff, stop production, utilize their production 
for health products and suddenly were selling direct to the um, National Health Service. Now that is disrupting, you know, it's good disruptive design, it's disrupting the model. And I think one of the barriers is, is the close-knit, um, you know, maybe there's a self-interest here, the, the, the close-knit networks between suppliers and the hospital users. And that's what I hinted at in my presentation. We, while we need new products in, in this new world, you know, to support health and well-being, we also need new business models. And, and, I, and I think that will be encouraging if, if new players come to the market who were not traditionally suppliers to the healthcare market might introduce a different level of innovation. I agree. Probably as a designer, we can help them in creating a successful strategy based on the um, transdisciplinary approaches, but with a specific focus on the human being. Um, I have a last question from uh, uh, the audience. Um, you mentioned the design responsibility. What is your view in the social political impact of design practice responsibility in moving our society into a human in capitalist society? Mm, yeah. It, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult challenge um, and, and it, it kind of penetrates the, the, the earlier question. It is that, um, Co-creation um, is, is encouraged. In innovation and, and co-creation is, is, you talked earlier about, is it, is it recognised more, more broadly now? And, and I referred to, to kind of business as, as kind of proved a point. And, and certainly uh, a lot of my experiences working with health professionals and a lot of the rhetoric that goes on in, in reports is they see the value of innovation and design and co-creativity but and the big but is as long as it saves money <laughs> and, and often that is the bottom line is as long as it saves money so we want design as long as you can come up with a more efficient way of doing things as long as you can make things cheaper and, and i think that this lend keeps lending itself as the question asked to a capitalist model is the design has to save save money but is actually making money for somebody and, and i think it's it, it's tricky ethically it's, tr it's tricky both in um the the healthcare setting which, which money shouldn't be an issue it's people's lives at stake and i think what we need to get more appreciation is the value of design you know the human value rather than the cost and and, and make, making th through the built environment we, we create as designers it's about enhancing the experiencing of living how, how do you put a price on that rather than just making a widget cheaper and, and making a service more efficient and it's always making things simpler and paring it down to make somebody money and, and i think unfortunately that that often is how they see design and and it has it can make a contribution there but i think it what we're missing out is real creativity and innovation that has broader value and i think there is opportunity to evaluate that in terms of economic cost and value about the well-being of a society. But, but often it's kind of misconstrued, I think, when, when people initially invite designers in. So, um, 
yeah, that, that's uh, I think quite a good place to end on. <laughs> I think this professor could be a good challenge now for the um, for new PhD students or for all the people that might be eventually interested in joining uh, the research in design for health and well-being. I I think this could be. Um, a really cutting edge challenge for them. Um, with this uh, question, Professor, I want to thank you for uh, uh, this beautiful uh, conversation we had in uh, this uh, this episode of uh, how release the Desire Research Podcast. It has been a pleasure for me and for us as uh, Yad Universidad Europea to have you uh, here today virtually, but. Uh, um, uh, you were able to inspire us and um, gives us some uh, uh, topics uh, on which we can reflect during uh, our academic lives. Thank you so much, Professor. Uh, it's been uh, an honor to talk with you. Thank, thank you, and thank you to the participants and the uh, very interesting questions. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, Please subscribe to our podcast on the main platform. For more information about the Unreleased podcast, go to unreleased.unitcom-yad.pt. There, you can find all the episodes and more information about our guests. Unreleased podcast is the result of the work of the Students of Design Culture and Practices course from the PhD in Design program of Yad, Universidade Europeia. It's produced and edited by Unitcom.